Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. What, what suggestions do you have or any um, um, curricula, robotic curriculum in particular, do you have at Cornell to help them, help your residents maintain their skills? Uh, you know, great question. Uh, I, I think that um, access to a, a simulator is going to be pretty important, uh, especially for those who, who are still thinking about uh, different aspects of robotic surgery, meaning that um, they're still focused on kind of stepping on the clutch or, you know, how to move the instruments. I think if you're in that phase where it's kind of like speaking a new language, if you have to think about the old language and translating every word, then I think that's where the simulator is going to help a lot. Aside from that, probably, you know, fortunately with, with streaming and uh, internet connections these days, I think a lot of it is going to be a lot of video review as well. Um, I think sometimes it's challenging because uh, there's so many videos out there and sometimes, you know, it's the, the, the videos aren't necessarily married to outcomes. And so, um, um, that being said, I, there's plenty of research that shows that that uh, those who are not surgeons can still tell good technique from not so good technique. Uh, so yeah. that's kind of framed some of the exercises to do during this um, just these extraordinary times. And what what robotic simulator do you use at Cornell? It's mainly just the one that uh, Intuitive has. Um, you know the the add-on exactly. Okay. I products. Okay, one last question. For, um, for those of our senior residents who are basically embarking on virtual interviews for fellowship for, you know, robotic mentally invasive surgery at this time, um, what advice would you give them for these virtual interviews for fellowship? Sure. I mean, I think, I think the key thing in life in general is, you know, you want to be passionate about what you do. Um, you want to come across appearing eager and humble, you know, have a positive attitude. You know, one of the things that, that I've learned as I've gotten older is, you know, there's the only two things that you can really control are what you think and what you do. You know, everything else is kind of out of your hands, but, um, but by, by controlling those two things, being positive and, and working hard, I think those are critical things. Um, as I'll talk about a little bit, as, 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 as I think you'll see during the course of the presentation, uh, you know, a lot of what I focused on early was doing a fellowship in robotic surgery. And then, then I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of people that'll say, you know, focus on the disease and not the technique. And so, so I think that's kind of a key thing as well as to always, as Wayne Gretzky says, skate where the puck is going. And a lot of times that, that means not just being uh, technique focused all the time, but but also having a mind about where the, the disease process and how things are being treated or is going. That's, that's really great advice. Everything you've said about, um, particularly about focusing your efforts on what's within your power to kind of control and improve, um, especially during these uncertain times. Um, so with that, I, I'd be delighted to introduce you. Um, we're really privileged to have Dr. Jim Huet was our speaker this morning at 7 a.m. for our, our Empire series. 
Um, Dr. Hu un earned his undergraduate degree in economics and a master's in public health at Johns Hopkins um, and his medical degree at Baylor College of Medicine. He completed his residency at UCLA and then he did a urologic oncology fellowship at the City of Hope National Medical Center. He worked at UCLA as the director of robotic and minimally invasive surgery. Um, and um, basically uh, came um, and is now a professor um, at Cornell and he's the director of the LaFranc Center for Robotic Surgery and the Ronald Lynch Chair of Urologic Oncology. And he's gonna be talking to us this morning about anatomic and technical considerations for kidney and prostate surgery. So take it away. Thank you so much. Uh, so so I, I changed the order uh, in terms of the title to put kidney first and then prostate last. And I'll try to keep an eye on the time so that uh, we're respectful of the, the, the Dr. Stone who's speaking next. Um, Let's see, how am I gonna advance this? There we go. So, so what we're gonna cover today, um, you know, as a reference, and, and many of these uh, are surgery and motion publications in European urology, and that means that one can go online and find these videos. They are, that, that publication type generally requires 12-month outcomes, and so there is some, some marriage to uh, outcomes as well. Uh, but uh, we'll start off with the, the, the kidney talk, and, and a lot of the, I think the, the foundation for at least me doing kidney surgery, learning the anatomy, was uh, being at UCLA where the, the urologist and the urology residents rotate through and uh, do not only the, the recipient side of the transplant, but also uh, the donor side. And so, so this is just, when I was back at UCLA for about two and a half, three years, we looked at the uh, laparoscopic donor experience at that time. Um, and that approached 1,300 cases. We mostly did left-sided uh, kidneys, and that's mainly for the, the, uh, the longer renal vein length, which just gives you a little better exposures to see the nastomosis when you're, when you're sewing this into the iliac vein. And you can see here, these are some of the lessons uh, learned in terms of the, uh, the, the modifications and technique that have happened over time. Um, a lot of the things that changed, for instance, uh, with, with better technology in 2005, one could decrease the uh, trocar sizes down to five millimeters because of the HD camera. Um, There's also a modification to prevent leakage uh, when we put in a 15 millimeter trocar for the stapler and you needed the 15 millimeter because of the laparoscopic bag. Uh, subsequently, there's a fascial incision made that we'll see a little bit later, uh, just to make it a little quicker to uh, just split the the rectus sheath and then uh, open up the peritoneum and take out the kidney. Uh, I think one of the other key things to keep in mind, and, and again, this is my opinions and, and others can, can determine whether or not this is uh, the best thing for them, is that um, you know, in, in 2009, for instance, uh, there was a conversion from using the harmonic scalpel to the vessel sealer uh, and uh, and uh, or, or ligature as it's more commonly known. And that, that avoids the use of clips at the hilum. We'll see some video examples of that. The other nice thing about the vessel sealer as opposed to the harmonic is that as you've probably learned, you know, if you take the harmonic out after you've used it, you put it on your glove, you can really burn your hand. So, so the, uh, the thermal energy that can really cause collateral damage, especially if you're gonna do blunt dissection with that instrument afterwards. Um, other than that, uh, I, I will, uh, you know, one of the other things that I like to do for, for kidney surgery that 
that I changed when I went back to UCLA from the Brigham in 2012 is when you are positioning and we'll see that you put the ipsilateral arm, um, you know, at the patient's side. And that really, that really frees up the, the person holding the camera, particularly in, in these cases, the, the camera person is uh, uh, cephalad and uh, using the trocar that's at the, the, uh, the, the costal margin and the rectus margin. And so, so with that, I mentioned positioning. And here you see that um, the, the, the hand is, is taped up here uh, at the side. Really, this kind of illustrates table flexion, but, but over time we found that you, do, you really don't need that much table flexion. There is no use of the kidney rest. Um, and then as I was mentioning earlier, the key things also from a cosmesis standpoint, um, we, we were extracting this with a fan and steel incision. Again, just from, uh, it, this would be below a belt line. But uh, we, we did make, like I said, a fascial incision. One thing to keep in mind when these patients are in this, um, this decubitus position is that the, the, the true midline actually, because of the panis, depending on how much of a panis has, actually falls down. And so, so you wanna make the skin incision a little higher uh, because of the gravity. And, and I'll, we can, we'll show you, you can look inside you, this, where this trocar for the stapler goes in just below the umbilicus. Uh, you can look inside, and that's really right at the junction of the medial umbilical ligaments. So you can use that uh, as uh, a landmark for midline. I mentioned leaving a band of uh, for so we we didn't take this band of fascia completely because if you did this before you you stapled and removed the kidney, then then this this trocar would tear and air would leak around that. You'd lose insufflation. So we left about a one centimeter band there. Um, this was a linear, pretty much a linear configuration of five millimeter ports. Um, and uh, also this was the last most caudad port was a little bit more lateral. So uh, you could, you could kind of look, look uh, a little bit more superior. So that's the uh, port configuration for, as, as for a laparoscopic donor nephrectomy as well as the laparoscopic radical nephrectomy. I don't really change this much with the exception of with radical nephrectomy, for instance, I'm not going to be as concerned about uh, doing a fan and steel incision. So as we talk about the key steps, and many of you who are doing a surgery, whether this is robotic or laparoscopic with a transperitoneal approach to kidney surgery, of course, one of the key things, particularly on the left side, is the reflection of the spleen. Um, and, uh, and of course, one of the key steps to avoid here is there's the muscle fibers of the abdominal wall. You, don't, you wanna make sure your instrument is not poking in or, or taking too big a bite there uh, to, to avoid a, a pneumothorax. Um, and um, one of the other key landmarks that, that we found to be consistent is that the, the ureter, of course, goes underneath the gonadal vein, but there was a pretty consistent relationship of that happening at the lower pole of the kidney. And so if you identified the gonadal vein and, and you, you traced it down, and inevitably you're able to do that as you reflect the, uh, the descending colon, uh, then if you looked at kind of the, the lump of the kidney, uh, in the retroperitoneal fat and gerotas, you would be able to uh, take the gonadal vein uh, at the lower pole and then find the ureter pretty much right behind that. So that's a pretty consistent landmark. Obviously, if there's um, a duplication, uh, that's gonna change a little bit, but uh, in most patients uh, with a single ureter, you're gonna be able to find that consistently at that site. So here's, here's a couple of other um, uh, things that I alluded to earlier. Uh, first on the right side, this is putting in that 15 millimeter trocar. Uh, I mentioned that um, there's the, uh, the fascial band gap. Again, that's if you took this all the way, the fascia all the way, 
uh, then inserted the port and then uh, stapled the hilum, uh, there's a chance that that by manipulating this this trocar subumbilical trocar that that that's going to tear the peritoneum and cause leakage around that port site. Um, the other thing is because this is a a uh, a, a vertical fascial incision, we're undermining uh, a lot the uh, subcutaneous fat to get to the um, to to make that that uh, fan and steel uh, incision, and, and at the same time have a vertical. Um, incision within the, the fascia and splitting the rectus muscles, which is just more atraumatic. Here on the left side, one of the key things that uh, we found to be useful in doing the donor nephrectomy, and if you're doing a radical nephrectomy sparing the adrenal, is, um, is to really use a, a atraumatic grasper or bowel grasper, grabbing the lateral edge of this um, adrenal gland, and then really hugging this closely with your, your vessel sealer or ligature. And, and the reason for that at least during donor nephrectomies is as you get renal arteries that branch, if they're gonna branch, tend to have a branch distally here into the, the, uh, the hilum and uh, by staying uh, right on the edge of that adrenal, you're less likely to compromise blood supply to the kidney uh, and hence the importance of that. That's just, this just shows a, a figure using your left hand, uh, you know, and elevating and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the adrenal and uh, using the ligature to find that plane. Um, finally, you know, one of the other modifications that we made was instead of dissecting out the renal artery, although we made that clear here for purposes of, um, of this illustration, you know, in, 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 in fact, when you're doing a donor nephrectomy and true of radical nephrectomy as well is all you really need to do is dissect behind the vein uh, and, then, um, and then clear the, the space behind the kidney, you know, elevating the kidney, releasing dorotus fascia from the the, uh, the, the, the quadratus lumborum, the psoas posteriorly, and then really thinning that out. And you don't really even need to have see the renal artery, you just thin it out such that it's safe enough to pass a, uh, the, the, the endovascular stapler behind. So that saves a lot of time. Also that modification was to decrease the, the likelihood of lymphocytes, which weren't common, but, but again, uh, a, a bothersome complication if you're doing a donor nephrectomy where you're starting with a healthy patient and the best you can do is tie. Um, so here's a, here's a video. Um, I may skip through this a little bit. I'm going to turn my volume off because I think there, if there is some narration, I'll, I'll turn the volume down here. Um, but, um, but basically, this kind of shows you the, the step of uh, taking the, the uh, peritoneum to release that spleen. Uh, that spleen just falls out of the way, and, uh, and then, therefore, one has better access to the upper pole. And again, we're going to take this as high as possible. There is there, if you're dogmatic, you'll always put in a, a, uh, a oral gastric tubes because oftentimes you can see the stomach there and of course you don't want to injure the stomach. Um, this just shows just taking that white line of salt. Um, we like to do this sharply uh, just because A is, I think it's a good exercise for, for the residents to try to avoid that vessel, some of those vessels there, then use ligature to seal that. And then the second thing is, is that you know, if you do a lot of, uh, if you're doing this a lot with monopolar, uh, there's a lot of charring, whereas, you know, when you're forced to do sharp dissection, which is going to be a consistent theme of kind of what, what we're talking about today, it really makes you train your eyes to see the anatomic plane. Uh, a key thing here is you can see the left hand is elevating, kind of providing that medial uh, tension at the same time. Um, and and we're, we're finding that plane between the, the, uh, the fat surrounding the descending colon, and then gerotas anteriorly. And here again, we're carrying that up cephalad towards the spleen. Um, 
let's see if I can just skip ahead here for purpose. So this is just an illustration, the split screen of how on the, on the left panel, we're using a Kittner now to kind of use, spin it a little bit, use top spin and find that anatomic plane bluntly. Whereas on the right side, we were again, continuing to reflect uh, the, the descending colon uh, and, uh, and here we're just doing it sharply. So, and I, I mentioned earlier, oftentimes when you do this, you'll be able to, and you can already see that, you can see the, the gonadal starting to appear. Um, so, so in doing this, you find the gonadal, which we found there. And I mentioned earlier, we'll, we'll typically get around this at the lower pole of the kidney. Uh, and shortly you'll be able to see that, um, you can see that it's the lower pole because the, the teardrop shape of Dorota is happening there. And then as we just elevated it there, you can see the ureter is right behind that. And so, so again, um, you know, if you're having difficulties finding it, for instance, this is a helpful thing to do for a nephrogridorectomy if the stent has been left in place and the stent tends to cause some inflammation and makes the anatomy less clear. And the benefit of the vessel sealer, again, is that I don't need to switch things. I can use this with a five millimeter trocar. I don't need a larger trocar size because of a I need a, a wet clip or, or something like that, although metallic clips come in in, uh, in a five mil for five millimeter ports as well. So here, we're gonna, we're gonna elevate this, uh, this ureter. Uh, typically for a donor nephrectomy, we're gonna take that ureter as it crosses over the common iliac artery. Uh, again, just for length to, to, for the, uh, the recipient side surgeons to put in. Um, you know, this does not typically, we, we, we try to leave a lot of that fat with the, the ureter to try to prevent devascularization. And um, then here, we're, we're, you can see that this is the, right behind the, uh, the ligature is the stump of the canadal vein that we've just um, used the ligature to divide. And now I'm just taking some of the, the, uh, the flimsy tissue over the renal vein to, to see that a little better. Um, I mentioned the adrenal gland earlier, and uh, right now we're, after coursing over the renal vein, we've identified the adrenal. We're sticking really right on that lateral edge to reflect that adrenal gland. And the goal is, as, as we keep going here, is to get down to the quadratus lumborum so that we're gonna see on the upper medial pole that we, we've really taken all of the connective tissue right down to the, the, the body wall here, and you're gonna see that shortly. And that tension on the, on the, uh, on the adrenal gland here is critical, again, to, uh, to help us get that exposure. You'll notice with a three trocar technique, um, we it's uh it's it's you're not going to be able to uh have most of the time you're cre creating this tension yourself you can put in another uh, trocar for a, a lateral assistant uh to uh to help you get lateral tension on the kidney um so there you go you can see the the body wall there now i switch hands i'm putting the uh the uh the ligature in my left hand and pushing the kidney uh away and so uh this this gives me more lateral tension to really clear that out. So, so now I'm taking the, uh, uh, the uh, adrenal vein here. And I'm going to skip ahead. So, so when we start doing the dissection for the, the lumbars, here I think you're going to really see the benefit of the vessel sealer. Again, one of the key benefits is that with the vessel sealer is that by not putting down clips there, um, I really minimize the chance of misfire. I think a lot of stapler misfires are because you have something, too much tissue or a clip in there and that uh, causes the misfire. So this is one little lumbar here that we're gonna take with the uh, vessel sealer. Uh, I, I mentioned the 
going into the midline, uh, using that as a landmark here for our 15 millimeter port. Again, less important if you're doing a radical nephrectomy and not doing a phenostele. Once that trocar is in, then we're releasing the lateral attachments to the kidney so that we're, you know, you don't want to take the artery in the vein and then do the lateral attachments because that's going to add to your warm ischemia time here. And you can see again, we're behind the kidney with the left hand pushing it anteriorly uh, and having good tension there. Let me uh, see how much, how we're doing in terms of time. So we're carrying this up to the upper pole. And then the kidney is pretty, pretty much uh, mobilized with the exception of, um, you can see there the, the renal vein and, and the, uh, the renal artery uh, behind it. And this just illustrates what I said earlier. You don't need to dissect out the renal artery uh, completely. Um, as long as I have thinned everything out, I can see the tip of my stapler there is, is uh, gonna fire across that whole thing. Then uh, the renal vein, we're really taking anterior to the, the uh, aorta. And then you can see there's the adrenal, the vein stump there. So we're really getting a lot of length there to make it easy on the, the recipient side. So that stapler's fired. And then really by the, the ureter is the only thing hanging. Um, and then we, we put this in the bag. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the only thing that's, there's one little fascial band uh, that we open in the peritoneum and then we extract. So that's the staple line afterwards. One of the nice things to think about when you do kidney surgery as well is um, to, once you've extracted, close that site completely then re-insufflate, that gives, gives enough time that if there is bleeding, that it's gonna well up. And then when you go back in and you re-insufflate after closing your extraction site, you can see here that this is relatively dry so you can be confident there's not gonna be a, a, a post-operative bleed. So actually, let me go to the next slide here. So, um, so when, you, when you look at the outcomes, um, you know, the blood loss is, is pretty minimal uh, for these 13, these 1200 some odd cases. 74% of these were, were single arteries. However, there were some patients who had multiple arteries up to four, um, 60 to 40% uh, male to female ratio. One of the other things to notice about kidney surgery is that, you know, in, in men, I find that they oftentimes have sticky fat, maybe uh, with the smoking that's worse, whereas some, a lot of that perinephric fat is much easier to dissect in women. Uh, and women have less retroperitoneal fat as well. The next time you're looking at CAT scans, you'll, you'll see that... Um, you know, women are, are thinner inside, if you will, than, than men are. Um, you can see that the complication profile here, uh, by and large, as I mentioned earlier, the seromas are largely from the extraction site because you're undermining that, um, that, that fan and steel incision in order to get a midline incision for the fascia and split the rectus. Um, otherwise, you know, when you do a left-sided uh, donor nephrectomy, and I suspect this number is lower, oftentimes, as you'll see, the uh, taking that gonadal vein uh, for some reason causes uh, testicular discomfort and uh, swelling in some cases, um, but uh, otherwise this was uh, tolerated, surgery is tolerated pretty well, no, no clavian three or four complication. Uh, so, so, you know, when, when I was in Boston in 2000, I think seven or eight, this was the, the first, um, this, this was the first uh, uh, transperitoneal partial nephrectomy that I did, and again, you know, you can see back then, uh, one would put the ties around the bulldogs. This was a posterior renal mass, so you, you flipped it entirely. But, but a lot of this, and there's a gush as we entered the collecting system, a lot of this is just based on the principles of, of uh, uh, laparoscopic kidney surgery. I like to do, as you'll see later, 
these uh, cases with the, um, the, the progress in my left hand. Um, and so we, we then, uh, I, I show that as an example because that's a posterior renal mass. And as, I, as, as I've done more of these now, of course, lots of people are using a retroperitoneoscopic approach or extraperitoneal approach. And so this is a multi-center study um, with uh, Jim Porter and um, Alone Weiser at, the, at Swedish and uh, University of Michigan, respectively, where we described the approach to the, the uh, extraperitoneal uh, approach for kidney surgery. Port configurations were a little different. At uh, Michigan, they, they like to do the traditional development of the, um, the extraperitoneal space by going off the tip of the 12th rib, whereas um, the, the, the technique that I'm accustomed to is going in the mid-axillary line, going about a centimeter above the iliac crest. Now, in this case, the table is flex so you open up the space between the costal margin and the iliac crest and then we put in our camera port first you'll see that one of the things that i like to do uh and, and described is uh to to use our our visual operator really to to drill in until you're below that lumbodorsal fascia i think a lot of people uh, do that with the cautery and then use their finger i don't like to do that finger dissection because again you're going to have to put a, a suture next to the trocar to decrease the amount of leakage and so once you establish, um, you'll see on the video, once you establish this trocar for camera, then we put in our laparoscopic hernia balloons that create the space. We put in our first robotic trocar, and then that allows us then to, to sweep the peritoneum down to put in this, this trocar, uh, which is more anterior. Uh, some of the landmarks for, for extraperitoneal, retroperitoneal surgery, of course, when you're approaching things from the side, or from the back, I should say, you know, one of the, your key landmarks is the psoas the quadratus lumborum, and then you're, you're really going about a centimeter above the junction of gerotas with that uh, landmark and then opening up gerotas. And, and immediately uh, you'll, you'll see the renal artery staring right at you in, in most cases, unless that patient you know, has, a, has a, a flipped uh, uh, vein artery configuration, which is uncommon. And then you're using the re renal artery as a landmark, uh, looking at your imaging to determine if you're going upper or lower pole in this case, lower pole tumor, so then I'm going to work CAUDAD to the, the renal artery landmark. Um, just the, uh, the averaged outcomes of the three surgeons at the three centers, the, the uh, warm ischemia time was relatively low at 19 minutes, um, and um, we can see that, uh, you know, in comparison to the literature, everything is pretty favorable. So uh, this is a demonstration in a gentleman who um, had basically had a a history of a left renal cell carcinoma that was treated with a partial nephrectomy and then recurred and had a left radical nephrectomy. Uh, the renal mass was identified November 2012. It's a surgery that I did probably uh, in 2014, I believe. Baseline creatinine was 1.7, and, um, and it, it, this right renal mass underwent uh, image-guided biopsy revealed to be papillary renal carcinoma type 1. Because of the history of uh, really surgery on that, uh, the left kidney, there's a recurrent small bowel obstruction. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's another reason in this case to avoid the, the peritoneum completely and, uh, and the potential for uh, bowel injury. So here's the, the imaging for this patient, uh, solitary kidney on the right, and you'll see this, this um, let's see, there's a little lag here as I scroll through the CTs. Here we go. So there's the there's your mass, um, right, really right next to where the renal artery is going to go in. I'm going to go back to that. There's the hilum, and you can see the 
artery's going to split there. Um, and then let's uh, scroll through. And here's the, the coronal. And there again is that, that little marble of the, the, the biopsy proven mass. So, so again, you can see the difference between that, that first uh, partial that I did and, and now we're, we're, we use the hernia balloon to create the space. Uh, the posterior Da Vinci patrol car was put in and then using that Kittner to push that peritoneum out of the way. Uh, and this is the, the system port right at the, the uh, anterior superior like spine. So we've opened up Dorota's fascia. Um, and, uh, and again, you see the renal artery right away, which is being pushed down. A lot of retroperitoneal surgery is fat management. So, so really just defatting now uh, and, and now dissecting down to the branches of the artery. You can see the renal pelvis here. We're actually going to see a major calyx up here uh, because we're really, there it is, we're really dissecting into the hilum to get to this mass and now using intraoperative ultrasound, which fortunately this was uh, visible on to, to identify where this mass is. And so I've really dissected this, this, this renal artery out. Um, you know, there's a, there's a branch here, this is another branch. And so fortunately in this particular case, and I, I didn't use Firefly for this instance, I, I bovied around the, uh, where the, the ultrasound guided me to and, and, and this completely endophytic mass you can see now we're, we're gonna dissect out. This kind of, you can see the yellowish color um, uh, and we're, we're doing a little bit of blunt dissection. I don't really enucleate, but in this case, because this is so close to hyalur structures, um, there is a little bit of enucleation involved and uh, this mass is just hanging now by, by that last, last uh, aspect there. And so we then start, it, it is a two layer closure. And again, one of the reasons I like the fenestrated prograsp is that you really don't need an instrument change there. You can use it as a needle driver. And uh, actually in this case, it looks like I did change back then, but, but now I, I typically just stay with the fenestrated bipolar. And, and that aspect also allows you uh, to uh, do the uh, sliding hemolock technique just because um, you know, the, the grooves in the fenestrated bipolar allow you to pull the suture through. So we're gonna do the, the reconstruction here with the first layer. See a little peristalsis here as we do that. Um, and here's our second layer. And oh, I do have the, uh, the fenestrated there in my right hand in this case. So, so um, the key thing for the second layer closure is you wanna take these perpendicular bites so that you're not skiving uh, because you there is really quite a bit of tension when you do this sliding, sliding clip and I'm, I'm pulling this perpendicular. I don't want to pull this way because that's going to saw through like a U-turn and cut right through that parenchyma. And um, oftentimes, you know, the question is, well, how, how, how tight do you pull? Well, as you're doing these mattress uh, sutures for your second layer renorophy, when you notice that the previous clip kind of moves, that is turns in because of the pressure you're generating, that tells you that there is enough uh, tension uh, on the suture line. Uh, and again, you're seeing that I pulled this out perpendicularly. This is what I meant by the grooves. I could even close that, that right hand and then pull the suture in through. And, uh, and then that, that closed pretty nicely. We're taking our, um, our uh, bulldogs off and, uh, and then, and then uh, bagging the specimen. So this particular patient, the creatinine actually fortunately didn't really change. Um, discharge from post-operative day one estimated blood loss 60 cc's. Uh, so, so one can extend that experience with, with kidney surgery to, of course, um, the, uh, the cable thrombectomies and, and much larger 
uh, kidney tumors. So this is a multi-center series uh, of about 20 patients. 17 were right-sided. You can see the operative times were re relatively long, 300 minutes on these uh, length of stays as compared to open surgery, much shorter. Um, and uh, the, the case presentation that I'm gonna show you now is an 80-year-old man who presented with gross hematuria bilateral lower extremity edema and uh, imaging demonstrated a cable, uh, level two cable thrombus. And, uh, and so this just shows you, just to orient, this is the cava. This is a very engorged um, gonadal vein that, that we're ligating now. Um, because of some of the, um, this, the, the, the this 10 centimeter mass uh, and uh, it being on the right side, I, in this particular patient, I, I think we're gonna see that the uh, ligation of the, the right renal artery takes place in aortal cable. And I think I just did that just for safety's sake. And, and also, we're going to be mobilizing the cava quite a bit anyway, so it's just to extract the thrombus. Um, so this, this is dissecting medial now to the cava and really uh, in that space where one would usually do a, a RPL and D. And I think you can start appreciating here, this is the, the left renal vein coming out off the cava here. And so, so we're skipping ahead. Here's the, the, the left renal vein, cleared things out. I think I put a clip down first before stapling with the, the endovascular stapler here. And so, so then this sets up the, the extraction of the cable thrombus um, using uh, Rommel tourniquets and Back then, I think I was a little bit more uh, cautious. We also uh, put, put these bulldogs down. Um, and you'll see in this particular patient, when, when you were opening the cava, there is a lot, of, a lot of a desmoplastic reaction here. You would typically, as, as you know, these, these, uh, the, the cava is paper wall thin, but we've yet to enter the lumen yet here. And you're gonna see there, we've entered the lumen finally. Because, uh, there's, uh, again, all that grind around the cava. And there's that yellow characteristic appearance of RCC with the tumor thrombus inside the, the lumen. Now, one of the things that, fortunately, in this particular patient, you know, with presenting with bilateral lower extremity edema, there's probably good collateralization. And you can see that you can run into these unanticipated things where the thrombus is pretty stuck to the, the, uh, the wall of the, the, the vein. And we're, we're really having to almost milk all, you know, it's not something that you just take out or can milk out and you're, we're really having to uh, grasp all these individual little pieces and, and take this out. And this is the back wall of the, the right renal vein that's being removed now. And you can actually see the, the, the stump, there's the renal artery, you'll see the, the stump there that we've already taken in our aerial cable. Um, and now we're, we're doing our, our reconstruction here. And again, um, with the, with the proline, it's, it's critical to, again, go in at a 90 degree angle so you don't skive. And we're just gonna run this to close it. We're gonna take off our, our tourniquets as well as our bulldog. And then we see that, you know, there's an area, this may have been a lumbar that we didn't see. And, and this is where you need a skilled assistant to, to make sure you, you help uh, get tension. And there, there we go. Uh, so now we're going to move on to, to prostate surgery. It looks like we have, we'll try to make sure we save time for questions. So this is described in 2009. One of the things I really like to do is to preserve the bladder neck. Um, and that starts with 
using your fourth arm to create tension. And oftentimes you can follow this like the ridge of a tent and where it stops is oftentimes three quarters or mid prostate. Here you can see the outline of the Foley catheter balloon as well. Uh, this just demonstrates after the uh, bladder neck dissection is done, uh, you have this turtleneck appearance. And oftentimes during the dissection, the, the bladder is filling up with urine and pushing on the bladder, you'll see a urine come out demonstrating a competent bladder neck. Now, as you start the, the bladder neck dissection, one of the key things is, is to do this, what I call this arch or this, uh, this uh, horseshoe shape uh, dissection. And, um, and I, I like to use, uh, minimize the amount of bovicotary or monopolar because otherwise uh, it chars and it's more difficult to, to find the anatomic plane. One key landmark is you'll see the vertical fibers of the bladder neck, uh, the, as it, the, really the bladder coalescing to become the prostatic urethra. Uh, then I will uh, divide uh, this and then we'll pull the Foley catheter back. And then, you know, I don't do this now, but as you're starting to do this, it's helpful to have the assistant uh, grab the posterior bladder neck and give you that counter traction so that you can find that, that plane uh, behind. And, and, and a lot of times, particularly early on, there's a tendency to you come straight down and, um, and therefore you're lopping off or leaving behind some of the prostate. Uh, so it's critical to really dissect uh, towards the, the, the head of the patient. And when you, next time you do a prostatectomy and you look at the specimen, take out and look at the gross specimen, you'll always find that the anterior uh, distance from base to apex is shorter than the posterior distance. So it's always longer uh, from base to apex posteriorly. And that's why your plane of dissection is really in this direction. And that's where the, the assistant countertraction is helpful. One of the other landmarks really to, to know when to stop your dissection is uh, the, the fat pad out, out here, the fat pad of Whitmore, as they called it at Memorial, uh, and uh, taking these, uh, the, the, the muscle fibers until you reach that, you can, you can stop at that point. Um, I think we're going to illustrate a video with uh, median lobes. You can also apply this technique uh, in those who've had prior chirps or median lobes. Again, the key thing is you want to release even more so in these particular patients, you want to release the uh, prostatovesical junction here laterally. Uh, there's the yellow demonstrating the fat pad and having that release, the adenoma really thins out the, the bladder and so it's gonna tear if there's too much trauma. Uh, so it's critical to release that. And the other key thing is, uh, particularly early in the learning curve, there's a tendency for, for surgeons to follow the, the plane of the adenoma. And if you do that, you're gonna leave behind the peripheral zone, you'll never see the seminal vesicle. And so here again, you've got to the, stop following the adenoma and know that your plane of dissection is going to go more cephalat. Um, and so we're going to see a demonstration here. Uh, in, in this case, uh, this is a person that has trilobar hypertrophy. Uh, you're going to see, I do use monopolar once in a while, but by and large, um, a lot of this is with bipolar cautery. Now, these adenomas can be uh, pretty bloody. Uh, so, uh, uh, Sometimes you'll, you'll find that there's a little bit more blood that, than you would like, but there's the vertical fibers uh, that we just opened. We pulled the catheter back, and now we're really emphasizing the lateral dissection of the prostatovesical junction. You can see nicely right behind that was the, the adenoma the, 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 on the left side. Now we're to the right side again, going to that fat pad. And uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna skip ahead for purposes of time here because I, I think we're supposed to leave some time for questions at the end. 
but we're really uh, we've really dissected out laterally, and now we're just peeling really the bladder off of the, the adenoma. Um, and and again, uh, I, some of the some sometimes when you're dissecting into the prostate, you'll see kind of a milky discharge. That's a hint that you're you're too close to prostate. If you get into a lot of a lot more bleeding, then that's also an indication that you're carrying that dissection plane too uh, too caudad and too close to the prostate. So. Um, Again, there you can see that we're we're peeling that that posterior bladder now off of the adenoma, and you can see how thin that 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 wall is right here. And so the fourth arm is critical to lift that up. And here again, I'm going to one emphasizes you have to stop following the adenoma once you get a sense of how thick the bladder wall is, and then go in a cephalad plane. Um, so so when we looked at timed continence for bladder neck preservation. We found in the in the uh, green here that that laterneck uh, that continence was better uh, quicker and ultimately better at least in this uh, retrospective study. Uh, we didn't see a difference in PSA recurrence, um, and um, there was a randomized trial actually in open radical prostatectomy from Germany that also affirmed the same thing. That is, uh, they they did pad weight here at um, at day one as well as at three months here in, in panel B, the lower row. And um, you can see that there was less weight of the pads for those who had bladder neck preservation versus non-preservation. And uh, in terms of no loss of urine here at three months, uh, you can see that the striped bar is the uh, bladder neck preservation group uh, and also demonstrating that there's, there's less um, severe incontinence here at early on at one day as well. One of the other key things is uh, I think there's been, in the, in the literature, there's a description that in, in more obese men, urinary incontinence was higher. And I think that was probably more likely with open surgery. I think there's a tendency when the exposure is poor for, for people to pull harder. And uh, one of the, the key concepts here is with tension, uh, which is a hidden enemy, uh, you always wanna move tissue until it, it stops uh, when you get exposure. And so if you keep pulling this too much, I think that's gonna be a reason why you can end up having worse outcomes really tugging on that external urinary sphincter. And this is just showing um, that when we looked at urinary function as a score of zero to 100, that uh, no, being conscious and not using that much tension at least had a, a statistical significance here to improve uh, urinary control. I mentioned um, you know being atraumatic with the external urinary sphincter, at least when I was taught to do open radical prostatectomies, uh, we always put a figure of eight in before we divided the dorsal vein complex. But one of the things that I noticed is that you can really do this without, um, with insufflation, you can just cut right through that, that DVC and have acceptable uh, visualization. And then once you've cut through, then you can suture ligate this, these uh, sinuses, which much smaller bites. The other thing that I observed was that there are actually arterioles in here, and you'll see that when you cut right through this. Um, and then you have your landmarks. There's the, the urethra. Here's the, with the, the pillars, as they're called, uh, which are the, the last part that uh, I dissect out. And then we start, we actually having your assistant suction lowers the insufflation and may cause more bleeding. It's just an example of how uh, large these sinuses can be, and yet you can cut through this with relatively good visualization and then do your selective suture ligation, which again minimizes damage to that external urinary sphincter. Um, also, uh, in this New England Journal of Medicine paper from Marty Sanda, you can see that those who had nerve sparing had better recovery of urinary function 
zero to 100 scale than those who had non-nerve sparing. Um, I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, I'm not going to talk that much about intussusception in the interest of time, but we had a fortunate to do a parallel trial with Dr. Walsh, who did this in open surgery. Um, and uh, this is the demonstration of the intussusception suture in open surgery. Um, but basically, in robotic surgery, you're doing mattress sutures, uh, bring the, uh, the fat pad around the bladder neck posteriorly and anteriorly. So we do this before the nastomosis, do the nastomosis, and then do uh, the intussusception suture anteriorly. Um, I'll just briefly, just, just this is the posterior suture, just to give you an idea of what that looks like. And the key, the, the thing that we're trying to do here is to put this in the, in the fat. And these sutures are absorbable. They're going to dissolve. Um, so then we're just going to bring the sutures back the other way and tie it together. And there you see it, the mattress going the other way, tying that down and really bringing that together. So it's almost like you're, you're creating a, a, a waste, if you will, around that anastomosis or right, right above that anastomosis. I'm going to see if I have the... And this is anteriorly after the anastomosis. So this is what I was looking for. So on a cystogram, you can notice that there's almost a, uh, an eight that's happening because we're, we're pushing that, that waste in. Um, and then when we looked at quality of life outcomes, we find that there is better earlier continence. The, the score is higher. However, at two months, that, that uh, continence disappears. And, and that was a zero to 100 urinary function scale. When you looked at continence, no pads versus pads, the same thing bears out. That is earlier, better earlier continence, really at two weeks, and then um, by, um, by, by two months, the, there, there really isn't much of a difference. So uh, let's see, we're at 745. So in terms of a step-by-step -step approach to nerve sparing, I think uh, this is probably pretty routine to most of us. If you're doing nerve sparing, you want to identify Devon vase fascia, really dissect onto Devon vase and create your posterior contour. This is from Walls, had a nice description of intrafascial, meaning right on the prostate, interfascial, uh, meaning it's partial nerve sparing, extrafascial is really just non-nerve sparing. Um, and then also uh, there's a way to open up the endopelvic fascia where you split the, the, uh, the lateral, the pelvic fascia, uh, which, which I'll, I'll show you a demonstration of. And this is kind of what we described back in 2008, where you just rub this open, you're leaving the pelvic fascia intact, and oftentimes you'll see nerves run through here. Um, and the benefit of this is if you open the endopelvic fascia completely, which is more laterally, you're gonna go, have to go back and open this layer again. So by, by doing this, by really rubbing this, this layer off, you're, you're at least not being redundant and, and not having to open this again when, when you do nerve sparing. Um, oftentimes, particularly in thinner individuals, you'll be able to see, it's not as clear here, but you'll be able to see where that, that leading edge of the, uh, the pelvic fascia is. And uh, here again, this is more apparent. Once we've started rubbing that open, you can see this here. Uh, and and uh, in contrast, again, if you open the, pelvic, the um, endopelvic fascia more laterally, you're going to see the, the individual fibers of the levator. And then once you've kind of done that posterior dissection we talked about earlier, as well as uh, done the anterior dissection, it's just a matter of connecting the dots. Um, this is another diagram. Uh, because one of the challenges, particularly early on, can be, well, where do I put the, the clips or where, where do I take the pedicle? In this case, also, it's helpful to open up this, the second layer of prostatic fascia so you can clearly de delineate the medial border of this neurovascular bundle, which is right here. And therefore, with my posterior dissection being here, then I know that 
this is all pedicle that I need to take. Um, so this is just a, 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 a brief demonstration of that. So now we're just doing our posterior dissection. And uh, you can see the, the, the kind of the very concrete white um, aspect of the non-VA's fascia. And now this is what I, this is kind of how I typically split the, the lateral pelvic fascia into the prostatic fascia and the levator fascia. And here, I, I mentioned earlier, you can oftentimes see a, a leading edge here. And you can see that more apparently right there. And oftentimes as you do this, as I mentioned earlier, you'll see a nerve like that. Um, and um, you also see capsular veins, which you want to try to stay out of. And so, so we've uh, done the posterior dissection and, and identified the contour posteriorly as well as anteriorly. And then, as I mentioned earlier, it's just a matter of really following this contour to, to put our clips on. So I'm going to skip ahead in the interest of time. Um, this just demonstrates, earlier I introduced the concept of an intrafascial plane versus an interfascial plane. So here you can see that the, uh, the, the, the fascia, prostatic fascia is intact here and it's a nice intrafascial plane. The non-VAs is here. You can actually see the edge of the non-VAs. And the, in contrast, the interfascial plane oftentimes actually use these veins that run the capsular veins that I talked about earlier. You can just split those, the insufflation, uh, the same principle of uh, selective ligation of the DVC, you can split these and then kind of leave the medial wall of the vein for those who have, may have higher volume or higher grade tumors and to do a partial nerve sparing. This just points to a lumen of the, the open vein to do that. Um, one of the key things, as I mentioned earlier, the concept of traction, a lot of surgeons uh, you know, are, are bound by the principle of traction and counter-traction. Their assistant will intuitively put counter-traction on that bundle and you don't want that because you're, you're stretching out the neurovascular bundle. And this is just an example of a published image where the surgeon himself to create this good nerve sparing plane on the left side, you can see that bundle is almost a 90 degree angle is being applied there. This just shows when we got rid of that assistant traction, the, the recovery of potency uh, was ultimately earlier and better. Um, the, the same thing can be applied to uh, peeling the nerve away or dissecting the nerve away from the prostate rather than the prostate away from the nerve. And so oftentimes when you're watching videos, you'll see people rubbing the neurovascular bundle away from the prostate and there's temporary S-shaped deformities that you're causing and causing neuropraxia. Whereas what you want to do is to try to dissect along the bundles uh, and use sharp dissection to release this. Uh, this just shows uh, dissection along this and I'll briefly play this video where this is pre-modification on the left side and post-modification on the right side. And again, we're just trying to minimize the displacement, lateral displacements in the neurovascular bundle, uh, which is a hidden, I think, uh, hidden cause of, of neuropraxia and trauma to the, the nerve. So on the right side, again, we're using more sharp dissection. We're, we're using more spreading of the scissors to do uh, sharp dis or blunt dissection along a vertical plane. And, and, you know, I have a nice plane on the, the bundle there, but, but that, uh, that transient uh, 
tension on the bundle is not going to help the reco ultimate recovery or, or, or the potency long term. So that's the demonstration on the left side as I get to the apex and similar principle on the right side here. The spreading of the scissors is, is, is a nicer way, in my opinion, to uh, really find the plane to get that neurovascular bundle off rather than the, the blunt dissection of pushing things away. The other thing you'll notice here is that I don't have my assistant grab the prostate. Um, you know, you, I, I think the less dependence you have on your assistant, the better off you are in the long term of uh, being able to do this operation all by yourself. Uh, this is just as we go to the left apex, getting that bundle out. Uh, and again, just showing that there's earlier and better recovery of uh, sexual function as a result of that. Um, briefly, I'm just going to mention the anastomosis. I still like to do a posterior interrupted suture. I do use a barb suture now, although I don't use the quill to bring the bladder down before I do that, that double-armed running to the anterior. Um, I'm going to show the, the, the old technique here. I'll put the suture in before we divide the, the uh, posterior urethra just because the, uh, that urethral stump can retract. Um, I oftentimes, this just, oftentimes I use my, uh, my suture cut needle driver now just to divide that posterior urethra to avoid, um, to avoid having uh, my assistant do that. So this, in this case, the, the, the uh, posterior suture has been put down already and uh, now we're just using a barb suture to do the anastomosis. And so the principle here is that when you're on the posterior part of the anastomosis between let's say three and nine o'clock, I'm using the ipsilateral and that is, I'm on the right side of the anastomosis, I'm using my right robotic instrument. And then uh, as I get to between nine o'clock and three o'clock, the anterior anastomosis, I can shift to my other hand and you'll see that that facilitates doing this in one and a half bites. So just from an economy of motion standpoint, that really makes things faster. You'll also see that as I do this at the end, I'll pull, pull up perpendicularly and uh, really getting bring the edges together, but if I pull back towards myself, I'm gonna tear that urethra. So um, uh, last thing I'm just gonna mention briefly, and then we'll have time for uh, some questions. Retsia sparing, this is a uh, paper that uh, Keith Kowalczyk uh, operated on patients offering retsia sparing and then compared to uh, the conventional robotic technique. This is in press now at European Urology as a surgery in motion, and they basically demonstrated that that the, the hazard ratio for incontinence using retsia sparing at 12 months was 0.18 as compared to conventional uh, radical prostatectomy. So this may be the next uh, step in terms of improving urinary function outcomes. Uh, and and this will be online, so you'll be able to find it, but this just demonstrates his port placement. Uh, I, don't, I don't really change it as much. I think the major modification is putting your fourth arm in uh, here and, and using your, your left arm out there. Um, stay sutures to open up that that uh, posterior dissection space and uh, and then really carrying out your your posterior dissection towards the apex everything is done posteriorly so you're finding that posterior contour without dropping the bladder uh, and uh, then you're opening the bladder neck from behind as compared to anteriorly uh, I'd start out with smaller prostates to avoid uh, learning curve issues and then um, once you've taking the bladder entirely, you, you have the contour of the prostate just like you do an open. Uh, and in this case, you're, you're skipping some steps of suture ligating and dorsal venous complex because you're trying to stay below that. And then this is the, the, the dissection to uh, separate the urethra is very similar. The anastomosis is done a, a, a little differently. 
you saw earlier we go outside in on the urethra, but we're go actually going inside out the urethra here. Uh, and uh, and uh, so, so the steps outside in on the bladder, so the steps are a little different. Um, I'm gonna, in the interest of time, I'm gonna stop here